All right, so as you can see, we're going to talk a little bit tonight about the love of the Father. I think we've already sung about that. Many of our songs have talked about God's love, God's grace, God's mercy, God's care for us. And we're going to continue with that uh, in God's Word tonight. So just to get us started, uh, so I don't know, it was about a month or two ago, but uh, my wife decided that we should clean out some stuff in the storage room down the basement because we have boxes in there that have been there for years and years and years. <laughs> okay, so we're looking through these boxes, and in and, and one of them are all these photo albums, all these photos, because my wife was one of those who, you know, loves to take pictures and then formulate them into all these scrapbooks. Do you know what I'm talking about? With little captions and every picture, and we've got all kinds of these things. But so just started kind of thumbing through those photo albums, those pictures, and I don't know, I just kind of got a little bit nostalgic, you know, kind of like, remember, remember uh, Clark Griswold up in the attic in the film strip that was running during Christmas, and he got a little teary-eyed and all the past Christmases, but looking at all those photos, right, especially of our children, right, because with each photo, there's a whole story that goes along with it, and you got to kind of tell the story and remember the story, so there at birth, right, capture the photo, and then there at the, you know, First birthday party, one candle, and then the first day of school, standing on the front porch with their little lunchbox, right? The Superman lunchbox, and off they go to their first day, and then there's a whole story behind that, right? And then the prom, and they go out and enjoy that evening, and then there's the wedding. I'm sure you have your family photos and treasures and stories that you could tell and get very nostalgic as well. I don't know about you, but I was looking at those, those books, and there's a lot of family, family photo albums and so on, but just looking at our kids and our, our oldest, I don't know if this is the way it goes with you, but our oldest son, you know, he's got his own fo photo album. There's, there's Nathan at birth. There's Nathan two minutes old. There's Nathan his first bath. There's Nathan at five minutes old. There's Nathan going home from the hospital. In the, you're right, this, then we got to our second son. You know, his name is Michael. There's Michael at birth. There's Michael on the first day of school. You know, there's Michael graduating. You know, and then we got to our third son. His name is Benjamin. I'm glad he's not here tonight. There's Ben at birth. And we got to get more pictures of Ben. This is, he doesn't have any more pictures. His photo album is very thin. And it's just the way it goes with kids. But those are wonderful treasures, aren't they? And you just look at those pictures and the stories that are all behind them. And it just kind of helps us recall the past. You know, time goes on. Can't stop it. It just carries us along and, and all the way through life. And every once in a while, we can just sort of thumb our nose at time and say, as it were, I've captured you right here in this photo, and I've got this to remember. And we can carry a little bit of the past with us on into the future. Photographs are wonderful treasures. Well, in a way, that's exactly what the gospel writer Luke has done in his gospel. What Luke has done is to capture certain photographs of Jesus. You know, I think many of us have come to understand and realize that the gospels, and especially Luke, they are not a videotape. They, they are not a biography that carries us along through every moment of Jesus' entire life. That's not the way it works. But rather what Luke does is he snaps a picture here. 
in Bethlehem, in the manger. And then he captures a picture there in Nazareth, in the carpenter's shop. And then there with Jesus and the blind man. And then, of course, there's a photograph of Jesus on the cross and the whole story that goes along with it. A photo album of Luke. So I'd like to show you tonight one of those pictures that Luke has captured for us. It's a familiar one. You know it. It's a picture that Jesus himself drew, obviously not with a camera, but with words. He drew this picture. I, you've all seen it before, heard it before, but may I suggest that there may be a few details in this picture of the man that we call the prodigal son that you may have overlooked or maybe you haven't even noticed before. So, let's look at Luke's photo album and this picture that Jesus draws for us in Luke chapter 15. Luke 15, I'm going to read just starting at verse 11. Familiar story, but listen again with new ears. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. And that's God's word for us tonight. So in, in our photo albums and those little scrapbooks that my wife has put together, each picture has a little caption and a label on it, lest we you know, forget the exact circumstances in which it was taken. So if I were to look at Luke's photo album here, especially in Luke chapter 15 in this story, if I were going to label these photos, I think there are three of them, I would simply put on the first one, sick of home. On the second one, I would put 
homesick. And on the third one, I would label it homecoming. So let's take a look, shall we, tonight, just for a moment or two at this photo album of Luke and these pictures that we have in chapter 15. And let's look a little more closely to see if we can see something new. So let's sharpen our focus, first of all, on this one that we call sick of home. Sick of home. There, of course, in the picture is the father, right? And he's overflowing with love for a son. And the son is just restless. He wants to get away from home. He can't stand it. And he says to his father, he says, Father, give me the property that is due to me. I don't know exactly what tone of voice he used with his father, but I don't imagine it was one that the father thought was very pleasant. Father, give me the property that belongs to me. Now, I've been, I've been helped in understanding these pictures from the Gospel of Luke by a, a, a book written by a man named Ken Bailey. Maybe some of you know, know his work. He's written a wonderful book about the cultural background of the Middle East and some of these familiar stories. Uh, the book is entitled Seeing Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. So I think it's important that we, we understand some of the cultural background in this photograph. It enriches the details and it brings them into sharper focus for us. So Ken Bailey in his book, says he went through some of the villages in the Middle East and he brought up this very familiar story. And he asked several of the people, he said, listen, would you ever say this to your father? And would you ever say this? And the answer repeatedly was never. No, I would never say. I would not dare to say to my father what this boy said to his. I'd never say it. You'd never hear it. Well, said Ken Bailey, have you ever heard anyone ever say this to their father? And the answer was no, never. I've never heard it. Well, what if you did? I mean, what if you did hear a young man say this to his father? What would it mean? And came the repeated answer. It would never be said here in the Middle East in our village. Never. It would never be said because it would mean that the boy wished that his father were dead. That's exactly what it would mean. It means that he had no use for his father whatsoever. He only wanted his property and he wanted nothing for his name or person or reputation or legacy, anything like that. Now doesn't that add to the rebellion of this boy? He hates his father, and he wishes that he were dead. Now, you also need to remember that the terrible rebellion of this young man was also an awesome and terrible thing in light of the villagers, the townspeople. I mean, you got to remember, did you, I mean, did you note that what the father gave to his son when he left home was not money? He didn't write him a check. He didn't go withdraw money from the bank and give it to him. What did the boy ask for? Property. Give me my property. And amazingly, that's what the father gave him. Really? Property? Covenant property? Abraham's property? 
a sign and symbol of God's faithfulness and promise to redeem and bless the whole world through a coming Messiah and deliverer, property that represents the resources that God is giving so that you can partner with Him in His redemptive plan, the very sign of the covenant and family union. Yeah, He gave it to His Son. His Son sold it, turned it into money, and then squandered it, as we well know, on wild living. Let me ask you, what do you think those villagers are going to do now? <laughs> you know, now that covenant property has fallen into Gentile hands. What do you think they're going to do? Well, again, Ken Bailey helps us in understanding. He says, almost certainly this boy would be judged by the council of the village in absentia. His crimes of wasting property and so on would be listed. And he would be excommunicated from the community of believers. Sick of home. Yeah, he's sick of home, all right. He's also sick of God. And he's sick of his family. And he's sick of his father. And he's tired of the whole thing that, that you and I and many of us hold so dear and celebrate together. Family. Our family relationships. I mean, what a sin. What an awesome rebellion. You know, it just, it just again, brings to light and, and just highlights for us, again, the importance of family. This is the way God set it up, everybody. This is the way God designed it, that, that we would live in homes and families with parents and husbands and wives and, and children and raise them to know and love and, and serve God and, and discipline them and care for them and so on. We're bound together in our homes and families with love and respect and compassion for one another. If we don't have our families, the whole culture and society is going to fall apart. Now, of course, there are many problems and issues when it comes to, you know, youth culture. We just look around at our world, right? Sure, it's bad when young people engage in promiscuous sex or use drugs or alcohol and so on. Of course it is. It's a blot on family life. But there's something worse. Did you ever realize that what this young man is doing is not just squandering money? He's not just partying all night long with his buddies and friends and wild living. He's thumbed his nose at God, at the family, at the whole village, at the whole plan of God recorded in Scripture. He has no use at all for tradition. He doesn't care what God is doing and has planned. He lives wholly for himself. He's completely self-indulgent, engages in what we would call, I guess, immediate gratification. Just give it to me. I want it now. I'm going to live. And of course, we all know sort of where that leads. It just leads down a path ultimately, of self-destruction. What a terrible, rebellious young man. Yeah, he's, he's sick of home, all right. Well, let me carry you along a little bit in the story and go to our second photograph, uh, which is homesick. Homesick. Can you see him? Sitting there, Right? In the pig pen, mud 
slopping up over his ankles. You know, the pigs kind of all slopping around him and so on. Hungry, starving, can't even get enough to eat from the pods that are left over from the pigs. I mean, what a scene, huh? Ironically, this Jewish boy in a foreign Gentile pig pen. How far from home can you get? Look at him. Is he repentant? And what do you see in the picture? Does he hang his head and in sorrow and repentance for what he's done? No. No, I don't think so. There's no repentance in the pig pen. It says, if you, if you remember the text from verse 13, it says that at some point he came to his senses. He came to his senses. A light went on in his mind, and he, and he, and he said to himself, boy, this is dumb. <laughs> but what, what a stupid thing to do, to leave home where there's plenty of food and you know, where dad takes care of everything, and, and there's plenty of all the stuff that I need there to end up here in this Gentile pig pen. Boy, have I made a big mistake. And then he makes his little speech. His homesick speech kind of goes like this. C can you see him? kind of saying it to himself and practicing and rehearsing it there in that pig pen, muttering in that foreign country. He says, okay, I'll go home and you know, I'll say, Father, I have sinned against you and against heaven. I'm unworthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. You know, it's, it's as if he's saying to himself, you know, why don't I go home to dad and, you know, kind of see how things are going back at the ranch. Look, I'll, I'll tell dad I made a big mistake. I honestly squandered his money. But, you know, I'll tell him I'm young, I'm healthy, I'm strong. Maybe I can strike a deal with dad and, you know, go to work for him. I, I could be like one of the hired servants and maybe see if I can pay off the debt that I have. What a terrible view of repentance. He thinks he can pay back the money. He thinks he can work it off, pay his dad back, and that'll make everything all right. He has no intention whatsoever of healing the hurt of the relationship, the broken heart of his father. I mean, maybe you're familiar with some of the standard formal views of repentance that go sort of along these lines. You know, views of repentance that, that teach us, well, yeah, we need to be sorry for our sins and you know, we need to grieve over those even, maybe maybe do penance to make up for it, reparations, you know, maybe before a priest or a church or something like that. You know, we'll go halfway to God. God will come halfway to us. We'll meet in the middle and we'll be reconciled. Is that the way it works? Is that the way it works? No. That is absolutely not the way it works. Listen, there isn't anything that you can do to make up for the hurt that you have caused God. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Stop trying. Stop thinking. Stop plotting. Stop scheming. It isn't going to work. Remember the song, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And I wonder if any of you, I know I have, think, have been guilty of this, I like a little bit of selfish arrogance where, you know, you hope to make reparations before God for what you've done and, you know, try to maybe save face a little bit. 
You know, do you say to God, God, I'll be good. From now on, I'll be good. I promise. God, God I'll do this. I'll, I'll do these three things. Then we're good, right, God? Or look, I won't do it again. I promise, I won't do it again. <laughs> Thinking that you can do something or say something to sort of get yourself out of this hole and maybe not look so bad. I'll tell you what, that is no repentance at all. Now, obviously, we need to be sorry for our sins. We need to grieve for our sins. Scripture says that. But not just for the sin. Not just for the sin, but for the relationship that we have destroyed with God. Listen, there's only one thing we can do. There's only one thing. And that is to throw ourselves at the mercy of God. That's all we can do. Simply accept His mercy. We can do nothing else. And then, when we throw ourselves at His mercy, you realize then what the amazing, wonderful, overwhelming grace of God really is. Homesick. But of course, we're not done. And so, we go on to the next photograph, and there is the picture of this wonderful homecoming. There it is. Now, when you look at the picture, you have to understand it's kind of taken with a, you know, with a, with a, with a wide lens, and perhaps you see you know, the village in the background. You don't see any people back there here in this particular photo, but you know, you got the landscape of the whole ranch, and, and you picture the father seeing his son, it says. He saw his son when he was a long way off. Can you imagine? Maybe you've done this. I've done this. Dad standing on the front porch or even walking down the street or even going to the edge of town and standing there night after night after night after day after night and looking and wondering, is my son okay? Is he sick? Is he hurt? Is he even alive? And just waiting. And then it says, you'll notice, that when he saw him coming at this long distance, it says the father had compassion on him. What, compassion on him? I mean, what for? Is he sick? Is he hurt? Has he contracted leprosy? Is he blind? I mean, why have compassion on this returning rebel? Ordinarily, I think that a father might just sit in his house in his chair with the newspaper, right, up and the TV on and just wait for his son to come in the door and see what he has to say for himself. But not this dad. Oh, no. He has compassion on him. Why? Well, may I suggest, although the text doesn't quite mention it specifically, that he has compassion on him, first of all, with regard to the villagers. Remember the townspeople? Now listen, do you think they're looking for this kid to come back? Do you think they know what's happened? Do you think that you know, they want their money back and they want their land back? Don't you think that you know, they're, as this mob is gathering in the streets that they're planning and plotting a punishment for this kid? I think so. And this father has compassion on his son with regard to all of his neighbors. He feels a tenderness for this boy and as he comes back and he wants to reach that boy before the neighbors get to him. Now listen, you see also in the picture the father running. 
it says that the father ran to meet his son. Now, I just got to stop there for a minute again because it, it, it's very clear that if you, again, if you know the culture and the background of the Middle East, a man in that culture would never run in flowing robes, not in public. Obviously, we have to adjust that a little bit because obviously we have no problem with that, right? People run and up and down Kent trails and in the neighborhoods and walking their dogs and running with their dogs. We see people out all the time. But I'm telling you, that would never happen in Jesus' day. Listen, the rabbis taught that a man's manner of walk tells you who he is. Aristotle, the philosopher, said great men never run in public. But this father does. And you have to understand that when he does, he doesn't care at all about cultural values or what's expected of him. This thing that would mark him off as being undignified and that would embarrass him in front of everybody, he doesn't care about it. He abandons all of the customs of the family and of the whole village, and he runs down the street. Can you see him? Look at him with his bare, hairy legs coming out of those long, flowing robes with that aggressive look on his face and his determination to reach that boy before anybody else does? Let me ask you something. Does this man love that boy? Of course he does. He loves him, and nothing will stop him from getting to that boy first. And when he gets there, it says he greets him. Doesn't say anything. He doesn't say a word, but just surrounds him with his arms and repeatedly kisses him. Now, we understand that, right? We greet each other with, you know, a little peck on the cheek and, hey, how you doing? And good to see you, so on and so forth. But that's not, not that father. That's not what happens here. The, the, uh, the, uh, the indication of the verbal use of this Greek word here is that what this father does when he kisses and greets his boy is something that he does repeatedly. It just keeps going on and on and on. It almost seems to say that he tackles this boy to the ground and just smothers him with kisses. He's so glad to see him and welcome him home. Wow, what love he has. His robes flying, the intensity on his face surrounds him with his love. For this, he says, my son was dead and now he's alive. He was lost. But now he's found, and I got him back, and I'm so grateful. Now, what's that boy going to say in the face of all those kisses and his father's determination to get to him? Well, he's got his speech prepared, right? He memorized it back in the pig pen. He made it up back there, and he rehearsed it all the way home. And so here it goes. Here it goes. Father... I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That's it? Nothing else? I mean, young man, what, what happened to the main phrase? What happened to make me one of your hired servants? Well, it's not there, is it? It's not there. You can look, it's not there. You see, now what's money? 
What's money in the face of such love? You see, this father's love has triumphed. His grace has just overwhelmed him. This is a triumph for the grace and mercy and love of the father. And now what was just the prelude to his speech that he made up back in the pig pen now becomes the main point. And now, now, he's truly repentant. Father, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against God. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That was the wonderful reconciliation between this father and his dear boy. Now, isn't that a lovely portrait? Isn't that a lovely picture of our Heavenly Father and all of the love that He has for us? I mean, Paul says, remember in Romans 5, 8, God demonstrated His love for us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. Now, I guess we all know something of this kind of love, this family love, right? We celebrate that together and we, we experience that. I mean, we've all maybe, you know, have held our children. I remember the day that my wife and I held our children in our arms and we, and we brought them before the Lord and we, we felt that deep love of a parent for a child. Many of us have felt that, right? Do you think that the father in this story held his little boy in his arms after birth, had him circumcised in the Jewish culture, dedicated him to God, gave him the mark of the covenant of faithfulness and God's grace and love. You think that father did that? Of course he did. Sure he did. What love? And that love that he felt at first was stronger than the muscle and the might of Samson, and it would not be broken, and he would be persistent forever, no matter what that boy had done. Now listen, if you feel that way about your children, most parents do, right? Most parents do. I ask you, if you feel that way about your children, boys and girls, that no matter what they do as they grow up, you'll love them forever, how do you think God feels? Our Heavenly Father, about us who have been made in His image, just like our children are made in the image of their parents. When we first belonged to God and, and He held us, when we first had our existence, and then when we were rebellious, how do you think God feels? Oh, let me tell you, this is such good news. He will be persistent. Nothing will stop him, and he will smother us with his eternal love. I, I don't, I mean, I have to end the sermon now because I don't know what else to say. I mean, I, that, that's it. Because how else do you go on to describe this love? I don't know what to say, right? What wondrous love is this, O oh my soul, O oh my soul? What wondrous love is this? I can't explain it any further, and I don't think that we necessarily have to understand it in our heads. I think that's going to be impossible, because it's, after all, illogical. It doesn't make sense that a father like that would love a person like that. I think it's important, though, that we just we acknowledge it and we receive it, and we bend our knee and be grateful for it. Behold. What manner of love 
the Father has given to us, that we, you and I, that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. Thank God. Let's pray. Father, we do rejoice in your eternal love for us. For even before we were born, you destined us in love to be your people. And Father, that is just incomprehensible to us, for we're only aware of your grace and mercy from time to time as we're conscious of it, as we think of it in these few years on earth. Lord, be gracious to us, to our children, through all the generations, until Jesus appears again and we will celebrate your eternal love forever. Remind us, Father, of this theme. Stimulate our hearts to respond to you in obedience and with the same kind of love for one another. We pray this in Jesus' name.